Hi, I'm Jeffrey Gordon. I'm the president of the American Birding Association and the executive producer of the American Birding Podcast. All of us at the ABA are grateful to you for being such loyal fans and listeners to this show. Right now, during our nesting season appeal, we're asking you to do what you can to help keep this show going and all the many free programs that the ABA offers, and particularly to help our young birder programs to ensure the next generation of leaders in birding and conservation get the mentoring and inspiration that has been so valuable to so many of us. Please, today, go to aba.org give or call us at 800-850-2473 and do what you can to help build a better future for birds and for people. Again, that's aba.org give or 800-850-2473. Thanks so much and good birding. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. Do you have birding enemies? I didn't think I did until I started reading critical reviews of the American Birding Podcast on Apple. So maybe I should be more sympathetic to Billy Baker, whose essay, I Have Birding Enemies, I mean, credit for not messing around, was published this week in the Boston Globe. It has the subheader, after years of being harassed by condescending bird nerds, I was out for blood, or at least one stupid warbler at the Mass Audubon Birdathon. I feel like Billy was trying to be tongue-in-cheek here. It's aimed at non-birders and, and more about how they might find it weird that anyone could be competitive about birds. And to them, I would ask, have you seen a hot dog eating contest? Because that, to me, is worlds less conducive to competition than an avocation that already has like the making a list part like built right into it. It is a much more natural jump to go from, I have a list. I would like to add another thing to this list before you do. Then I see a plate of chicken wings. I think I could eat way more than you can. At least to me, eating competitions make me queasy. My point is, is that pretty much anything can be a competition. And for the most part, birdathons are are on the chill end of the birding competition spectrum compared to say the World Series of Birding and Champions of the Flyway. And most important, like no one goes into a birding competition, even a very low stakes one, then acts surprised that people are taking the competition seriously, like Billy does and did. But I mean, it is all written from the from the perspective of, you know, a guy tries thing that seems easy and finds out it's not so easy. That's a vein that has been mined for satire for centuries. Then he sort of backs into this artificial birders versus bird watchers dichotomy and kind of awkwardly steps into a conflict that evidently people stopped reading as satire and started reading as a shot across the bow at quote unquote serious birders, which means the social media was full of this is why I'm not a birder stuff and comments about how we should stick it to those stuck up birders. And I'm thinking, hey, this escalated a little quickly. Um, and I spent probably way too much time trying to figure out what rubbed me the wrong way about that. So y'all get to be the beneficiaries of this thinking. So I have this theory that I've nursed for a long time about how birding is a hobby that requires a certain amount of acceptance of uncertainty. And when you have people coming into birding from a place where their conclusions are rarely questioned, they can sometimes react poorly. I saw this all the time as an eBird reviewer. Uh, and I get it. I still get a little riled up when my own work is edited. It's the same thing. And birding is a hobby wherein that sort of feedback is baked into the community. We reevaluate, we learn, we pass on information, and we're wrong. 
And, and do some people wield their knowledge and skill in a way that might belittle others? Sure. And sometimes that's intended and that's frustrating, but we are a community of humans susceptible to the same faults of humanity. But I would wager that that most of the time we are just a little too excited about sharing knowledge. Uh, there's a sincerity to birding that can be off-putting to cynics, maybe. You, you do have to let your guard down in the birding world. And I think we would all agree that birding is at its best when we're all sort of earnestly geeking out about birds. And in my experience, even the most competitive among us are here for that. So I, I guess my lesson is, like, be open to that. Even you, Billy Baker. I'll forgive your birdathon slander this time. On the show today, we are talking Terra an incredible new device that could turn every yard into a bird tracking data center and identify your birds for you on the side. Mike Lanzone and Scott Whittle are behind it. They join me to talk about it after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of May 2021. Occasionally, a single bird takes a flyer, so to speak, and ends up representing a first record for multiple states and provinces. The last time this happened maybe was 2015, when a zone-tailed hawk cruised down the East Coast from Connecticut to Virginia, or maybe the black-backed Oriole of several years ago, or the great black hawk who famously flew the wrong way. This time it's a Hearman's goal, that sooty Pacific specialty. One individual had spent the winter in Northeast Florida, then cruised up to Georgia in late February, where it represented a first there. We mentioned it here in this spot. And this last week, it decided to go on a much more ambitious trip, heading up to Virginia, where it was seen in Virginia Beach in mid-May, a second record for that state. And from there, the bird went all the way up to Massachusetts, where it was seen in Bristol, a first for Massachusetts, at which point it decided to head back south, where it was seen by a single birder in Rhode Island, a first, before settling in Cape May, New Jersey, because where else, where it is sitting tight as of the recording of this segment. First record for New Jersey, by the way. So a pretty cool story. If you're wondering how we know this is the same bird, there have been good photos taken just about everywhere. It has been, has a rather distinctive wear pattern on the wingtips and also on the head. And it has been photographed in Georgia, Virginia, Massachusetts, and New Jersey so far. So I have some other firsts to note, perhaps none more extraordinarily flashy than the one from Colorado, where a yellow grosbeak is visiting a feeder in Huerfano County in the south part of the Front Range. Yellow grosbeak is primarily a West Mexico species, but has been seen in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. It is not regular in any of those places and frequently is a one-day wonder sort of thing. So the fact that this bird has been hanging out for several days is even more extraordinary. That's not all. We talked limpkins a couple weeks back that birders should watch out for them. I did not expect Minnesota to be the next state to get one, but that's par for the course with this bird this year, I guess. Uh, Minnesota's first limpkin was discovered in Washington County, the furthest north this bird has ever been recorded. I have a hard time believing that one could get farther out there, but who knows. Also next door in Wisconsin, an Arctic loon was found on Lake Superior in Bayfield County. This is an extremely rare bird for the lower 48, especially in May, as it is in breeding plumage. I got more to Wyoming where a Bells Vireo in Niobrara County is evidently the first documented record of the species, which is surprising given that they breed in neighboring states, but probably has more to do with the lack of coverage in Wyoming, particularly that eastern part of the state, than anything else. And one more, not officially a first, but the first in 123 years, so I think we can kind of unofficially count it. A male Stellar's Eider at Pointe-de-Mons, Quebec, is only the third record on the east coast of this Arctic duck, interestingly, Quebec's first record from 1898 was also 
from Pont-de-Vence. So a busy week of rare birds, and that was just the first and nearly first for all the rest. Check out the Rare Bird Alert every Friday at aba.org slash rba. You can also join the Rarity Sharing Group on Facebook. That's ABA Rare Bird Alert, or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Regular listeners of this podcast might remember a couple years ago, I talked to Mike Lanzone of uh, Cellular Tracking Technologies about the Internet of Nature. One of the, I don't know, maybe dreams of that project was a device that birders or anyone really could put in their yard that picks up these tracked wildlife and, and perhaps even identifies them when they pass over your, your home. And that device, it is here. It's called Terra. Mike Lanzone joins me to talk about it. He's joined by Scott Whittle. A photographer and co-author of the Warbler Guide, among other things. Welcome to you both. This is very exciting. Thank you, Nate. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So let's just start out by describing Terra. Uh, what does it look like? What does it do? Uh, okay. Terra is a small device that's about six inches in diameter. Looks like a little UFO. And uh, you stick it in your garden or on a wall or on your deck. Um, we're going to include some attachment accessories like a spike for your garden and a bracket. And once you do that, it connects to an app and lets you listen to your yard or to wherever the microphone's placed. So you'll be able to listen to natural sounds inside even when you have your windows closed. And that's the most, I think that's the probably the core functionality for, for a lot of people. It does a few other really cool things, though. Um, it lets you listen to other places, like curated sites around the world, like, say, a rainforest in Panama or a watering hole in Africa, a waterfall in Hawaii. We're, we're planning on creating these curated microphones so you can actually listen live to those places, which is really a great thing to have when you're in the office or mm -hmm. trying to go to sleep, uh, just a little way to you know, travel somewhere else and uh, enjoy that. And then finally, um, it also has optional sensors you can get. So it actually lets you monitor your yard as well as listen to it. So you can monitor uh, weather, uh, soil moisture. So if you need to um, water your garden, it'll let you know, and uh, flooding, that kind of thing. So it really gives you a full picture of what's going on outside and connects you to the natural world. That's really cool. I mean, Mike, can you talk a little bit about the process of taking this cellular tracking technologies work and applying it to this project? Sure. Yeah. So we've been working for a long time on, you know, just being able to track wildlife well. And, mm -hmm. you know, it really excites me a lot to be able to, that somebody could have a device in their backyard and still pick up a bird as being that a researcher somewhere in the world is tracking. Somebody could set this device in their backyard and that researcher would know something about where that bird is. Maybe it's during migration, maybe it's breeding there. Um, but these local habitats that are, all of us have, and all of us probably have a little bit different yards. Some of us have suburban or urban yards, or you know, it doesn't matter. But making these small tracking devices is really, you're limited by where, the, where you can pick them up because mm -hmm. these tiny, tiny little devices can't talk to the cell network. And you know, all of our first devices, obviously, that's how we, you know, cellular tracking technologists, where we got our name, all of our first devices talked to the cellular network. Um, you know, we started making some of the first cellular transmitters for wildlife. But as we got smaller and smaller, the technology had to be different because small animals can't carry all the equipment necessary to send to a cell tower. So we're really relying on base stations essentially and so you know if if you're a researcher 
uh, you set up a base station at your research station. Uh, those research stations are part of the MODIS network, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And the MODIS network is kind of a worldwide tracking network, but you're still limited to, you know, to a few thousand of these MODIS stations that researchers set up. And so there's a big question, you know, when they're not being tracked on those MODIS stations, you know, where are they? And the big missing piece of this puzzle is, you know, think of where all these researchers are, you know, Cape May, Long Point, you know, all these good birding locations that we already know birds are are there, Mm -hmm. you know, researchers are tagging them there. And then those birds leave and they start migrating. You know, a researcher is not putting a, a base station in somebody's backyard. And so there's all these other habitats that birds are using during my migration that's really critical to conserving them. So, you know, being able to take what we do at CTT and have person, you know, citizen science uh, aspect of this where somebody could, could get a tire, put it in their backyard and physically see these birds from, you know, oh my God, you know, I'm in Florida and I just had a, a you know, black-throated blue warbler that nested in Pennsylvania or a black pole that, that nested in Canada, you know, just was in my yard. You know, they're going to see that. The researchers are going to see that. I mean, just a, a really cool extension of, of the technology um, and the ability for, you know, normal, everyday people, birders, uh, naturalists, or people that, you know, maybe don't even know they're in- interested in nature yet. They buy the mm-hmm. terror device because, well, this is really cool. I can hear these other sites and, oh, that's weird. What is that? <laughs> oh, my I don't even know what a evening gross beak is, but there's one that's in my backyard that was tagged at Powder Mill Nature Reserve. I wonder what that is. And, you know, it's going to hopefully intrigue a lot of people to dig further. And, you know, from the Terra, it's going to really connect people to nature um, and to this whole other world of of conservation. Yeah. And if I can just um, just to clarify just a little bit, um, I think everything Mike's saying is really exciting in case it wasn't obvious the Terra, in addition to having two microphones and it also has a radio receiver so we're Mm -hmm. essentially um, expanding this radio receiving network on a really broad scale um Mm -hmm. but we're also utilizing these this sound identification technology so we're going to be able to hear the small sounds that birds make like um, they make these calls and migration called flight calls um and we'll also be able to listen to their songs and by the way not just birds also yeah frogs insects all anything that makes a sound we'll be able to track and that way we can actually um follow migration on a really broad scale i mean you know you can band only so many birds or add trackers to only so many yeah. birds but if we listen to the birds making sounds we really can track all of them at once yeah scott i know you worked on the the bird genie app Mm -hmm. Um, It's out there, sort of a bird vocal identifier. Um, How did that work sort of inform what is going into Terra? Well, that really gave us a a solid foundation on the... the complexities of identifying sound. And right. Yeah, identif- that's a tough nut to crack. <laughs> it is a tough nut to crack. A lot of people have tried it. Um, we got further in bird genie than really anyone at the time. Um, I think that, uh, you know, other people were, were only able to get maybe solidly 20 or 30 songs mm-hmm. uh, at 95% or 100%. We were able to get up over well over 150. So I think the foundation for that was we were actually using... Um, 
a structure that we created in the Warbler Guide, which was a set of vocabulary for analyzing songs. So a lot of people would do this sort of black box uh, machine learning where they would just take as many songs as they had, throw them in there, and Mm -hmm. have the computer try to sort them all out. Whereas um, what we did was we actually created a, a broad set of algorithms that would look for specific things about the songs, the frequency range that they're using, the tonality of the song and all kinds of other rather technical details of the song and that way we could actually make a good guess as to what it was before we even started that machine learning process and i think that really made a huge difference so i think we're going to be able to apply that same logic to um this you know bird song identification and and uh, i'm pre- pretty confident that we're going to be able to do it uh for real this time yeah that's really cool um, this whole thing reminds me a lot of sort of eBird. You know, it started as this very robust kind of scientific project where, you know, you you get all the hobby birders to submit all their their bird information into this one website. And then bird scientists can take that information and, and use it to to figure out trends in bird populations. Um, but it didn't really catch on until there was like something for the hobby birder, like uh, it was a way to Put your keep track of your list, your county list, your state list, whatever, or uh, a little bit of a competitive element like the top 100. Um, it seems like Tara is doing the sort of same thing. Like it's it's especially you know building out the whole Modus network to you know provide all these little household radio transmitters that will be able to track all these birds that you've tagged, but also you're giving back to the birder that puts it in there too. They they suddenly know what's in their backyard. They know what's flying over, and that's such a such a cool thing. Yeah, and I think that it's amazing to be able to do it in an automated way because one of the problems that you have with eBird, which is, you know, I'm always participated in eBird and I think it's (laughs) a a, a fantastic resource and project. Um, But the um, one of the issues you have is reliability of the reporter. Mm -hmm. You don't know who if it's someone who's a brand new beginner to birder or a deep expert. So you don't know how reliable the information getting is. With these sensors, the information is going to be um, standardized across yeah. the entire network. So you'll know for sure, you know, what kind of birds are, are there and which ones aren't. And, uh, it'll be a really clean data set to use. No, oh, that's cool. Did you both feel as though this project was sort of a natural extension of what you had been doing? Um, and are there any sort of completely new elements that surprised you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, from, from my perspective, you know, this is, this was definitely something that I've been thinking about for a really long time. I mean, mm-hmm. back when I used to be, so I used to work at Carnegie Museum of Natural History doing the Breeding Bird Atlas and doing a lot of point counts. Uh, and so a lot of audio stuff and also, you know, running the bioacoustics laboratory, recording flight calls. And, you know, I, I wanted to make a small little device on a research side of things and get it out on like telephone poles and all over the place mm-hmm. so we yeah. could, you know, automate recording and 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 really you know the conservation the applied conservation uh that you could get from devices like that and, and my vision for that as far as you know all the way down to you know citizen science level you know kind of really was was very similar i i thought you know i talked to scott the first time uh you know there's a uh for those of you that aren't familiar with cape may new jersey there's an ebird hotspot uh, called coral have um, and it's a little platform that uh, we go to in the in the morning and and, and watch seabirds. Uh, but also, there's there's really good morning flight there. 
it's just a really good spot to watch migration. And, you know, one, one morning I was talking to Scott because, you know, I knew he had an interest uh, with bird sounds. Uh, we were talking about bird genie and I'm like, Hey, you might be interested in a project that I'd like to get going. And just in the, you know, 15, 20 minutes of talking about this project, I knew that he had the same mindset that I had for mm. developing this device. And I'm like, you know, this, I knew right then and there, I'm like, you know, I want you to run Terra, <laughs> you know, cause his vision was, was right on with mine. And, you know, so it was really exciting that both of us, that the vision for this little device uh, and not only within conservation, but connecting people to nature was right on. And uh, it's, it was super exciting. Yeah, we really were simpatico on that. I agree, Mike. And I think what's interesting is we both come from a deep passion for birds and wanting to share that with people. And Mike has really pursued the research and conservation aspect of that and the importance of science and information that we can get about birds. I have pursued more of the education and teaching about people about mm -hmm. birds. So what's so cool about this project is it does both. I mean, yeah, it... Yeah, yeah. it connects people to their local nature, which is, it's not the nature you see on TV, on, you know, your nature programs. It's actually the real nature that's right next door. And which, if you start to learn about it, is really just as exciting, I think. And it combines that with the idea of creating this giant um, conservation network for science. So those two things together, I think, are more than the sum of their parts, and it becomes a really powerful concept. Do you think that there are research applications for this sort of thing? Like, is there is there like a home version of Terra and then potentially like a really robust, I don't know, like a, I don't know, like a 12 inch speaker or whatever. I don't know why a bigger speaker would do more than a smart speaker, but like a, like a, a, a something you could set at like a, a known hotspot and just uh, funnel in all those birds that are passing over. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, I think initially we were just thinking like, a, you know, the consumer device, but we were mm -hmm. already, we've had questions about, hey, I, I, I work at this bird observatory and we're thinking about X, Y, or Z, what do you think? And that may be a next step for us. I mean, especially mm -hmm. when you come to like the, the nocturnal flight calls, um, yeah. the microphone that's in there, there's even a, a little small parabola. Um, and, uh, you know, Bill Evans, oldbird.org, you can see some of his, you know, original microphone designs, which are look I mean, basically a flower pot. And right. inside that flower pot, there was a small little plastic uh, plate. And um, he put the microphone on the plate. And, and it's very simple, but it's extremely effective at recording nocturnal migrants. You know, that's one of the reasons the device is six inches is because it's kind of the minimum size you really want to go down to for recording flight calls. Now, if you were able to go to like eight inches, it would even be better. So potentially better is a strong, strong word. It may not, yeah, right. you know, but for like a research station, you know, if we built like a research grade that maybe had a slightly stronger antenna, a better microphone, we well, asked certainly some things we could look into. I do think that, you know, we tried to try to make something fit into a, a form factor that that would work well at home. Um, and mm -hmm. in that setting. So we tried to have a balance uh, and, and make something that was a bit more affordable as, as well. Right. So yeah. 
I'm already getting a sense that we're going to have people modding this stuff a little bit and, <laughs> and uh, kind of making their their own bird stations. But it is a, we, one thing we learned working on apps is that even the microphone in the iPhone is unbelievable what it can yeah. pick up. I mean, totally. you really wouldn't think that it would be a ID stuff that you can almost not hear and it still picks it up. So I think even the small microphones we're going to be using in this product are still going to be very effective. And I think probably the most important thing first is going to be coverage. You know, mm -hmm. I think that even though having just a hundred of these out there would, would be really useful. Um, we're looking at a grand sort of world domination scale where we'd like to see, <laughs> you know, tens of thousands of these out there, because I think that would create a network that would really show us the whole picture of everything going on. Yeah, I think the I think the ease of using it is going to be a super appealing thing. You know, I I have wanted to set up a nocturnal flight call station at my house for a long time, but you know, the fact that there wasn't any sort of commercially available one stop kind of set it and forget it sort of option um, has kind of held me back. And the fact that this is out there or will be out there um, is really really super appealing. Just from that perspective, I think that there's an opportunity to get a lot of people who are sort of curious about nocturnal flight calls, but maybe hesitant to to build up that flower pot station to use this and get really excited about it. Yeah, I am not a good solderer, and so <laughs> yeah. um, so I soldered yeah, I, uh, the board on uh, like my my stove when it stopped working, and that was a that was a, a terrible terrible process. I would not do it again. That is much more advanced than I am. So <laughs> so yeah, I think having a product like this that will not only be standardized and optimized mm -hmm. for this stuff and easy to use, but also the fact that it automatically contributes this data, you know, with the user's consent and with, you know, anonymously and with privacy concerns considered, mm -hmm. of course, but it will um, contribute these bird songs and sounds to a central server uh, without you really having to do anything except hook it up. That's, that's also great because it's not just recording the sounds, but actually doing something with them, which is right, right, right. which is the other half yeah. of the equation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I know people who spend their entire mornings like looking at the nocturnal flight call recordings and trying to pick out the little <laughs> seeps and sips. Uh, and that sounds like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. Not not to, you know, slight people who are really into it, but it's it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's great if you're into it, but you know, yeah. we want it to we want everybody to be into it. Right. right and right. Uh, yeah. not everybody has the time or or passion or commitment. Yeah. And something you mentioned as far as it being tied into the, you know, the, the research side of things, you know, so the recordings that are being made on Terra, picture this, like 7 a.m. across the, the globe. As soon as it hits 7 a.m., the device turns on, records a couple minutes of audio. And that audio could be analyzed for like, just like point count data. Mm -hmm. You could do that throughout the breeding season, throughout migration. Um, so you're... You can have then, you know, there could be graduate students or researchers that are looking at point count data sets um, and, and having a resource like this. I mean, you can start getting at real abundance um, yeah. and, you know, and it's it's just this extremely rich data set for people that are, you know, conservation purposes or it could be people looking at, you know, like I did for years, uh, you know, Andrew Farnsworth and I looked at variation within flight call and it was kind of crazy the amount of information from a conservation set applied conservation standpoint looking at that mm -hmm. you know we were able to tease out male and female magnolia warblers from a tiny little note 
when you're able to do stuff like that or adult or young birds, you add a layer of data uh, into this already rich data set that you can mine for all different kinds of conservation questions. And you know, the list goes on and on for analyzing song, looking at climate change questions with it, with the audio. I mean, it just, it's an incredibly rich data set. You know, one of the first ways people discover new species uh, with birds is typically now they don't see a bird that looks very different. What they have mm-hmm. is these sort of cryptic species that yeah. that look the same, but are actually a different species from their sound. And yeah. the sound is how they figure that out first. So, you know, if we get these out there, I have my fingers crossed that we might actually um, dig up a couple of more species of birds out there with it. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, like Swainson, the Swainson's thrushes and the solitary sandpipers and stuff like that. Exactly. Don't know a lot about. Yeah. So will it work just for the U.S. and Canada? I can see people using this sort of thing all over the world where there are migratory birds and wildlife. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I mean, right now, you know, North America is kind of where our first release sure. of the identification piece is going to be. Uh, but, you know, we're planning on very quickly trying to, I think Europe is next and then rest of the world. And so... Mm-hmm. The nice thing about this is the user is not going to have to do anything. They're going to be able to enjoy it for listening and and all the other things that it can do already, tracking and all that and sensors. Um, and whenever the sound piece is ready, it's going to automatically work on that device without doing anything. And so, hmm. um, you know, we're we're hoping and you know part of this, uh, if the Kickstarter goes really well, um, which we're we're hoping. The more money we're able to, to raise, uh, both during the Kickstarter um, and afterwards, uh, will really help speed that process up a, a lot. You, you know, because it's a lot of engineering power. You know, within Terra, we also have a nonprofit section, uh, which is going to be doing a lot of the research-related questions. Uh, with uh, and, then, and part of that is identification piece. So we're going to have mm-hmm. people working at more advanced methods for analyzing the audio. We're going to be working with partners. Uh, like Cornell and others, to look at some of this data um, and integrating that into other projects. It would be great to be able to have this working in conjunction with other things like eBird. The better things work together in this day and age, the more powerful conservation tool it's going to be. And that's part of the reason I think that we're partnering with, with Conservation Science Global, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to uh, support scientific collaboration and conservation around the world. So that's uh, another key idea in this this whole system is creating uh, integrations between these databases and and these uh, these data sets. Mike, you mentioned Kickstarter. Yep. Let's get to the <laughs> let's get to the, the business end of it. Like, how can people support this project? <laughs> well, so so tomorrow uh, or the the twenty you seventh. Know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It would have been well when this comes out. It'll be last, uh, week, yeah, last right. week, but yeah, yeah so, near enough. <laughs> well, right now you can you can uh, go on to Kickstarter, and our page should be pretty accessible just from uh, Skype. You know, it's going to be on the main page, I think, at Kickstarter because they're featuring us. Yeah, they're we're 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 expecting oh, cool. that we'll get featured, and and it's the Terra project. If for whatever reason you have a hard time finding it, you can always go to our website, Terra Listens. Uh, with an s.com you can go there and and uh, you'll have a direct link to the kickstarter there too but it should be yeah it should be pretty front and center on kickstarter oh cool how quickly are you going to have these things in people's hands 
So we're hoping within a, a, a year. I was going to say three months, but if it's a year, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Between three months no, and I a year. A, a year is probably <laughs> what we're a realistic expectation for doing a final design on the product, doing the engineering for the software and server development and all that stuff. So yeah, I think we can do that. Because really what a, what, you know, what yeah. a Kickstarter, for those of you that don't know kind of what a Kickstarter does, I mean, it basically is, is that we, you know, right now we've developed a prototype device. Uh, we've integrated our technology from CTT into it. Um, and we have all the basics working to have a viable product. And Kickstarter is mm -hmm. really going to help make that device a reality. So as soon as this gets funded, we're going to basically be hiring the people that are going to take it from a prototype device that does all this to a consumer device that is more robust and reliable and all the different aspects of you know talking to your home network and uh, bird identification and all that kind of stuff gets integrated at that point. And so so really if if we hit our goal at a minimum level, you know, it may take a little bit longer for some of those things to come along, but you know, we really think uh, you know, this has a much a much broader appeal to a lot of people. Um, everyone that we've talked to been, has been as excited as we are, I think, um, which, which is, which is really <laughs> yeah, <totally>. encouraging. I <laughs> mean, uh, we were at the Cape May Bird Observatory the other, other day and, I, and we were talking and I was holding a terror in my hand and coming up behind me, there's, there's two people that I have never met before that were just coming into the Bird Observatory. And I heard, Oh my God, is that a Terra? I turned around. I'm like, well, yes, it is. <laughs> and so it's, I mean, it's really, it was really awesome. And it's like, people are already hearing about it. Um, and even, you know, emailing uh, people this last week here in internationally and, uh, you know, some good, good friends of ours in Sweden were like, oh, we were looking at that page. We're so excited. Uh, you know, other places in the world too, they're already seeing that it's happening. And so it's, it's, it's encouraging. And, yeah. um, you know, really exciting uh, for us uh, because, you know, it's not just about a product for us. It's about the conservation applications and really connecting people with nature. And that's, that's what really excites us. And, you know, the people that are joining us in this journey to become part of the Terra family by, by backing us on Kickstarter, they're really the people that are going to make this a reality. So everyone that does this is, is going to be part of, of this journey and that's that's what makes it exciting we're all kind of in this thing together and going to be really exciting in a year when ten thousand people get their terrors in the mail and then the next fall when you start getting that's that, right <laughs> you start getting that information that's going to be so cool i think mike meant to say fifty thousand people <laughs> right, yeah. 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 High, right? I, yeah. <laughs> no ten thousand would be great <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's, it's really i mean the, the, the more people that we have on the network and i think it's going to grow over time um you know it's this is this is something that imagine getting up in the morning you hear terror streaming in your house um you know you go downstairs you you or even on your phone you look at your device and you say you know what flew over pennsylvania or new jersey or wherever you live last night then you click it in a little further what flew over my neighborhood what what's in my backyard right now what's mm -hmm. You know, what was there last night? Where did my birds come from? You know, this whole thing just right at your fingertips. And, you know, the more people that get on this network, the, the, that's where the power of this really, really comes into, into play.
it's really exciting because it's, I think, like Mike's saying, it's really about forming a new community mm -hmm. and or sort of maybe it's a community within a community, but we're we're forming this alliance with a bunch of people. And that's that's the part that I feel really has the power to create change. So it's got so much potential. And and uh, so far, the signs are excellent that that it's uh, it's going to achieve that. Thanks so much, Mike Lenzone and Scott Whittle. I'll have a link to the Kickstarter in the show notes so you can uh, get this thing ordered. I will probably do that if I haven't already when this has already gone out. Um, <laughs> good luck to you both. This sounds really, really cool. Well, thank you Thanks very much. so much, Nate. Thanks for having us. Just a quick note before we go on Terra. Some people have brought up the question of privacy, whether or not the Terra can be used to spy on your neighbors. I apologize for not asking that. In the interview, I'm certainly guilty of letting the bird stuff override the rest of my brain. The Terra FAQ on the Kickstarter website does answer this question and notes that they use digital signal processing DSP technology to obfuscate human spoken words, but also mechanical noises like heat pumps, pool pumps, etc. It's essentially the same thing that Siri or Alexa use to detect human speech, except that it uses it to screen it out rather than to emphasize it. So I just wanted to clarify that the technology exists. Terra won't ship without it. This project can't work without it. You can learn more at Kickstarter. Do check it out. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it by joining the ABA. Members get more, like our great magazine's discounts to our partners like Beauty of Books and the Cornell Lab, and opportunities to travel with us now that we are actually doing that. Get information at aba.org slash join. I want to make some shout outs this week to Diane Bounds of Winnetka, Illinois, Susie Reddy of San Luis Obispo, California, Brian Sanborn and Sally Sovi of Corvallis, Oregon, Susan Blancett of Golden, Colorado, and Susan Sauter of Wilmington, Delaware, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you all so, so very much. I really do appreciate it. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who suggests that instead of obfuscating human speech, that the Terra folks replace it with the calming screams of a limpkin, because nothing is more soothing than that. Technical production is by John Lowry, who wonders if Terra can please obfuscate the sounds of his neighbor's leaf blower because it's freaking summer and there aren't any leaves to blow. Turn it off before I have to come over there, Jerry. Additional help from Greg Neese and David Hartley. Confuse the DSP for drill sergeant program and assumed it meant that Tara would hire some intimidating military gentleman to come over and yell at your neighbors to shut up so you can pick up those nocturnal flight calls. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. I, I suggest that if Tara really does come up with a research grade version that is about one foot across, that they call it the pterodactyl. That one is for the poets. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Get vaccinated if you can. See you next week.